Well, good morning, gentlemen, and uh, welcome to RAF Cosford. I'm Howard Mason. I chair the Royal Aeronautical Society's Aeronautical Heritage Specialist Group. Uh, and this is our first conference since before COVID, so we're very pleased to see you all here, having obviously fought through on the roads, being unable to use the trains. I think this is a great topic for a, a conference. Um, TSR2 is one of the legends of the industry and certainly uh, a visit to Weybridge in 1963 was one of the things that uh, inspired me to join the industry 50 years ago. So uh, I'm delighted to be able to hand over to uh, Dr. Harry Rafal, who's going to be uh, from the RAF Museum, who's going to be doing the housekeeping, and Paul Sluddart, who will be running the day for you. Welcome. Okay, so we've got Tony Butler speaking next, and I think you'll probably all know Tony uh, from his secret projects work, which I hadn't realised, Tony, you'd done so many until we were chatting last night. Fundamentally impressive. Well, good morning, everyone. That's one of my favourite photographs of TSR2. Um, if you've ever looked at some of your photographs of air-to-airs of TSR2, they're either always side-on or always three-quarter rear like that. I always think the camera ship probably could never keep up with it. Well, that's one of my favourite. I must thank Paul for asking me to take part today. It's really pleased to be involved. And I'm actually going to take a look at how TSR2 became hardware. Quite a bit of what I'm going to talk about today has already been published before, not least by me. But I want to go a little bit more into detail of one of the rival projects from Hawker Sidley. And also briefly look at an alternative engine to the TSR2's Bristol Olympus units. Then I'm going to trace the path that led to the completion of the prototype and the first flight. But I'm not going to look into the flight trials themselves because, of course, again, that's been covered in depth, not least by, of course, the TSR2 pilot, the late Roland Beaumont. It was often Air Ministry practice to consider a new type of replacement from the point it first entered service. And as Clive's just explained, the search for a replacement for the camera began pretty quickly. As he mentioned, the first concrete effort for this came in 1953 with a a requirement around the version of the thin wing javelin, OR328, which was cancelled in 1956. Um, one of the frustrations of COVID is that I've learnt in the English Electric archive at Wharton, there is a design again from 1953 for a supersonic mid-wing design as a camera replacement with the engines buried in the wing roots. I've unfortunately not been able to see that yet, but I don't know whether that was a direct competitor to the thin wing javelin, whether it was involved with OR-328, whether it was something just entirely off the drawing board, if you like. But it was really the establishment of GOR-339, general operational requirement, that really got things moving. Time-honoured practice for providing a tactical strike reconnaissance aircraft for the RAF had generally been to take a frontline interceptor and then dress it up with ground attack weapons as a fighter bomber. Here, with 339, we had tentative features for an all-new aircraft type. And as Clive said, the document was established in 1957. Knowledge of this new requirement began to filter through the industry quite early on, and several manufacturers actually attempted to design new versions of current aircraft currently under development. For example, this one, a version of the de Havilland DH-110, which of course eventually became the naval sea vixen fighter. There were four in all, I think uh, the Scimitar version of that and the version of the Buccaneer feature, but they were all turned down in July 1957. 
And of course, all of this was ongoing with the background created by the 1957 Defence White Paper, which had cancelled the development of all new fighter aircraft for the RAF, with the exception of the English Electric Lightning. GUR339 was written towards the widest possible application of new aircraft to cover commitments to SACUR, that's the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, plus other requirements under various treaties, operations in colonial wars, and police actions. And the requirement included a radius of action of 1,000 nautical miles, of which 200 nautical miles was to be flown at low level. And the emphasis was placed on low-level capabilities, since this was considered to pose the greatest defence problem to the enemy, and it would offer the best chance of getting tactical reconnaissance on the greatest number of occasions. The alternative weapon loads, a tactical nuclear store, which was codenamed Red Beard. There could be 1,000 pound high explosive bombs or batches of high explosive rockets. And for reconnaissance, the aircraft would use photography and radar. And great importance was attached to an independence from long concrete runways. Work on the main proposals, the main design submissions, began in industry later in 1957. And then a meeting held in September between the Ministry of Supply and the heads of all the major companies revealed that contracts would only go to groups of companies working together. All of the submissions, design submissions, had to be made by the 31st of January 1958. Eight companies plus the Hawker City Group having been invited to tender. So let's have a look at most of the designs that were proposed. And you'll probably guess that that came from Blackburn. That's the B108 development of the NA39 specification, still to be called Buccaneer at that stage. And as Clive has already mentioned, and other documents do, versions of the Buccaneer were offered to the Air Ministry on several occasions through the 1950s and 60s, long before it was finally adapted, uh, adopted by the RAF. This is the Bristol 204 with its Gothic wing. This is original manufacturer's model, and I think it was on display alongside TSR2. Is it in the next hall, TSR2? Um, whether it's still there, we'll have to have a look a little bit later on, but that's an original manufacturer's model which would have been prepared with the brochure for the aeroplane. That's the one from de Havilland. Uh, de Havilland Christchurch, I might add, not Hatfield, but the former airspeed facility at Christchurch. And had this been built, it would have featured a variable incidence wing. I couldn't really resist putting two illustrations into my favourite of these. This is another manufacturer's model, and this is the Fairy proposal to 339. And of course, Fairy, as you can see, were making use of its Delta Wing experience with Delta II research aircraft. And there's a second view of it. The English Electric offering was the P17. And this is a model made by a good friend of mine, Joe Cherry who was up in Scotland, who would have come today if it hadn't been for the rail strike. He texted me this morning to say he couldn't make it, unfortunately. And then there were two proposals from Vickers Armstrong Stroke Supermarine, a single-engine version, which we can see there in the original uh, artwork for the manufacturer's brochure, and then a twin-engine version as well, and that's a model made by another friend, a chap called John Hall. And if we now look at the proposals from Hawker Sidley, Firstly, the Avro 739, one of the Hawker Sidley Group companies. And then the Hawker P1129 from the Hawker Aircraft at Kingston. And that's a model, again, original manufacturer's model. This one's held at the Brooklands 
museum down at Weybridge, and you can see there, it needed, when I took a photograph of it, it needed a bit of uh, tender loving care to the wing and the fin. But I also, they've also got a TSR2 model down there, and I couldn't resist putting the two side by side. All of the films describe twin-engine aircraft in their brochures, though Vickers Armstrong, as I've just shown, the single engine was its main version, the twin engine was its, considered to be its second choice. There was, for vertical takeoff, a separate development of a lifting platform from Short Brothers as part of the English Electric pro proposal it was known as the P17D, and it offered a way of getting vertical takeoff capability. It was rejected. I haven't included that today because it does feature a lot in published works. An examination of the alternative engine showed the essential features of OR339 could be met by either the Rolls-Royce RB142R, which in fact seemed to be the most favoured engine for most of the brochures, the Rolls-Royce Conway 11, the Bristol Olympus 15R or the Olympus 22R. But in fact, the differences involved appear to be relatively small. And the choice eventually narrowed to two engines, the Olympus 22R and the Rolls-Royce RB142. And the 142 is a military version of the RB141 Medway, which an engine was then currently under development as a private venture by Rolls-Royce for the British European Airways medium-range jet, which in fact became the Hawker Siddeley Trident. There's a, a drawing of the engine from the brochure. And since it's not too well known, I thought we'd just describe it in a little bit more detail because it was initially the favoured engine for most of the uh, manufacturer's proposal. This would have been a bypass turbojet design. It was fitted with reheat. It would have had a four-stage axial flow low-pressure compressor coupled to a two-stage turbine, and then an 11-stage axial flow high-pressure compre compressor coupled to another two-stage turbine. And the predicted thrust ratings at December 1958 were 16,400 pounds dry and 26,300 pounds with reheat. The civil RB141 first ran on the bench in 1959, and in all, I believe, nine examples were to be built. But it was eventually dropped as an engine project and replaced by the Rolls-Royce Spey. After the Olympus 22R was chosen for TSR2, the RB142 also died a death, though I think, I believe the designation was resurrected later for a vectored thrust development. In a paper dated 1st of January 1959, Rolls-Royce engineer Adrian Lombard, eminent member of the Rolls-Royce team, he disagreed with the choice of the Olympus, citing that the bypass engine was superior in fuel consumption and other performance aspects of the two engines were identical. So I offer the suggestion, would the RB142 have been a better choice than the Olympus for TSR2? An instrument and electronic system had been devised by the Royal Aircraft Establishment and the Royal Radar Establishment to give the TSR2 the ability to operate with minimum consideration for prevailing weather conditions by day and by night. But the design brochures, the proposals for the new aircraft designs did not, with the exception of English Electric, and to a certain degree from Vickers, contain much informed comment on this avionic system, and I believe that counted against them quite a bit. Choosing a winner, a winning design, involved rather more than just assessing the designs. Never before had such an advanced and complex aircraft been proposed for the RAF. Consequently, studies of each company's capability to produce, its experience in the supersonic field, 
its manufacturing and flight test facilities, management strength, and technical and scientific manpower, all, manpower, all of this formed a major part of the assessment by the Ministry of Supply, its establishments, and the air staff. And an RE Farnborough review of 26th of March 1958 was most illuminating. It read, in making this assessment, we have considered specialist experience, flutter, fatigue, kinetic heating, and also general experience of airworthiness and strength problems. Most weight has been placed on the assessment of the parent firm, the supporting firm, in, given in brackets, being considered as a subsidiary. So when it began to review the companies, it said, we consider that English Electric, with its partner in brackets, given as Short and Vickers, English Electric is the most competent of the firms with most aspects of structural design. Vickers Armstrong, with English Electric as its partner, was placed next. The Flutter team at AV Row, part of the Hawker City Group, is considered rather weaker, but apart from this, there is little to choose between the two firms. Bristol, who would have short as its support, have a strong design team, especially on Flutter and Fatigue, and they will have the experience of high-speed research aircraft. Doesn't mention it, but I assume that was referring to the Bristol 188. We consider, however, that they are, Bristol, they are likely to take longer than the above three firms to design the aircraft. Of the remaining firms, we consider that Ferry, with Blackburn as support, are weak on flutter and vibration, and also on general design considerations. Blackburn, who would be supported by Ferry, would be placed low in the list, even if they did not have the naval NA-39, the Buccaneer. And the de Havilland Airco proposal did not provoke confidence in the design team at Christchurch, and we consider that it would be unwise to bank on a supporting firm with a large civil commitment. So some pretty savage comments on some of the other firms there. So it appeared that the most promising aircraft to meet GOR339 was indeed a twin-engine type of conventional pattern. And at this day, the RB142 was the most favoured engine. And it had become clear that the choice lay between Hawker Sidley, Vickers and English Electric. Indeed, Vickers and English Electric work was considered to be of the highest quality. English Electric experience with the P1 Lightning interceptor fighter would, of course, benefit the new requirement directly. And a combination of these two firms would command excellent technical resources. For a period, the possibility of awarding two design study contracts was discussed, one to a combination of Vickers and English Electric, and another to Hawker Sidley, but this was rejected. And in July 1958, it was recommended that the development of the GOR339 system should be allocated to combined Vickers and English Electric team. As an aside, an August 1958 ministry report noted that, from the American point of view, this new UK strike aircraft would be obsolete before it was built. It duplicated machines flying in the States today. It didn't say what, but I assume the North American A3J Vigilante. Republic Aviation in America declared that the UK should be going for a much more advanced aircraft that would represent state-of-the-art in 1970. But I do wonder whether they were pushing for this aeroplane, the Republic F-105 Thunder Chief. And that's an artwork from the original brochure for a combined follow-on Hawker Sidley proposal, if you like, a Hawker Sidley TSR2. If we go back in time just a little bit here, in October 1957, when the first discussions were taking place for the proposals, the chief designers at Avro, Gloucester and Hawker had attended a Hawker Sidley group meeting to discuss GOR 339. 
In November, it had been agreed that each company would submit its own separate proposal, though in the event Gloucester did not uh, produce its own design. Though by mid-December, it had been realised that Avro's 739 design approached Hawker, Sidley's, uh, Hawker Aircraft's P1129 very closely indeed. However, in the 1129, emphasis had been placed on airfield performance and subsonic cruise and altitude, whereas the 739 had been designed around the low-level and supersonic phases of the flight plan. These are the two designs we saw a moment ago, not the one we're looking at now. Because those separate proposals have brought criticism from the Ministry that the Hawker City submission should have been a single project. In fact, it amounted to something of a telling off. So Avro and Hawker now merged their projects in a similar way to English Electric and Vickers Supermarine with its own TSR2 design, which is what we're looking at here. And I want to look at this Hawker Sydney project a little bit more closely to give you the opportunity to consider whether this offering might have been a better choice than TSR2. I've got two, three views here. That's the outline one. I don't know how well that looks upon the screen. But uh, Hawker always used to like to do these shaded versions of its uh, three views as well. Brief details of this new, what was termed a P1129 development, were given to the Ministry of Supply in July 1958 with a full brochure following in November. The updated aircraft had improved supersonic capability by virtue of reduced wing thickness and area, and close attention to area rule had given a minimum drag level at a speed of Mach 1.34. With either the Rolls RB142 or the Olympus 22R from Bristol, it could now perform the basic 1,000 nautical mile radius mission with a supersonic dash at Mach 1.7, all on internal fuel at a takeoff weight of about 75,000 pounds. Provision was made for the carriage of two further 250 gallon drop tanks on the wings, under the wings, which would increase the range to 1,200 nautical miles. All of this, of course, was estimated data. And the results of tests carried out by Ari Farber on a radar echoing model of the original Avro 739, the data from this had also now been received and recommend, recommendations incorporated in this new aircraft, including improvements to the radar camouflage and the total weight of radar absorbent material installed in the airframe was two, came to 290 pounds. There we have the internal detail drawing for this Hawker Sidley TSR2. A redesigned weapon bay could now take two bullpup high explosive guided missiles as an alternative to the specified single red beard target marker. In other words, the nuclear store. The nuclear stores were often called target marker bombs. Other alternative loads were three 1,000 pound high explosive bombs, 90 two inch diameter air to ground rockets or 24 of the larger air-to-ground rockets produced at OR1099. In addition, it could take a self-contained high or low-altitude reconnaissance pack or a flight refuelling pack. And a variety of further stores could be carried externally. The forward-looking radar consists of a modified blue parrot set with a 28-inch diameter scanner. The sideways-looking radar comprised two 7-feet-long X-band aerials mounted at the sides of the nose wheel bay within the airframe. Reconnaissance equipment in the weapons bay packs comprised two eight feet long sideways looking Q-band radar aerials, while a large variety of photographic cameras, flash units and line scan equipment were also installed in the pack. And these changes have considerably improved this Hawker City proposal's performance when flying the 1,000 nautical mile sortie. 
There was little to choose between the two engine versions with respect to weight, that's to say RB142 or Olympus, in terms of the weight, but the aircraft powered by the Bristol engine appeared to show the better supersonic performance. And the proposal brochure outlined a batch of 12 development aircraft with two ground test airframes. The first four would have a minimum equipment installed. The next five, although capable of taking full equipment, would initially be partly equipped according to their particular trials and testing requirements. Then the last three would be fully equipped and on completing their development trials, these would be delivered to the RAF. So I've presented this design in quite some depth in a different situation. Would this have been chosen, or could it have been chosen instead of TSR-2? Would it have been a better aircraft? Would the all-new RB-142 have been a better engine, or would that have caused delay? Would the fact that neither Hawke or Avro ever actually flew an aircraft that was supersonic on the level when English Electra had plenty of experience with the Lightning, would that be a key issue? Though deep down, I suspect Hawker aircraft would not have found that a problem. These are all hypothetical questions. I'm curious to know what you might think about it. On the 8th of January 1959, Air Chief Marshal Sir Claude Pelly, who was controller aircraft, told Sidney Cam, the chief designer at Hawker, that the decision to use Vickers and English Electric had in fact been taken in the summer of 1958 which in fact confirmed suspicions within Hawker Siddeley that this new, later OR339 effort had been a waste of time. It was too late. And in fact, there is a statement in a ministry document described it as an, a going through the no, motions effort. Overall, this proved to be a great disappointment to Hawker Siddeley. And from now on, Avro would concentrate on civil aircraft while the Hawker moved on to the vertical takeoff P1127, which of course, some years later would become the Harrier. Returning to TSR2 itself, on the 17th of December 1958, a House of Commons statement noted that GOR339 had been approved and design contracts were to be issued. This was the first public acknowledgement of the project's existence and it became a hot topic both with the press and with MPs. And so it was that on the 1st of January 1959, the Minister of Supply, Aubrey Jones, announced that Vickers Armstrong and English Electric were to develop a new strike aircraft, called for the first time TSR2, and with the Olympus as its power unit. Sir George Edwards of Vickers would head the project, and all of this, of course, was part of a deliberate move towards reorganising the aircraft industry, and the two firms in 1960 would become part of BAC, the British Aircraft Corporation. The new aircraft was in fact to be known as the OR339. But in 1958, a study compared the upcoming unnamed Blackburn Buccaneer for the Navy, the new tactical OR339, and the embryonic Hawker P1127 vertical takeoff aircraft, then being considered for ground attack. For this study, the three types were labelled TSR1, TSR2, and TSR3. When Jones publicly announced the new strike aircraft, he mistakenly called it TSR-2. And indeed, if you find a memo dated the same uh, 1st of January 1958 by one J.E. Herbeck of Ministry Technology, he writes with some irritation, the OR-339, ah, no, or TSR-2, as I gather we must now learn to call it. Because the aircraft did not have a name yet and in fact would not last long enough to get a name. Some of you may have read in publications long ago that TSR-1 was allocated to the biplane Fairy Swordfish from World War II. 
That indeed is true, but in those days TSR stood for Torpedo Spotter Reconnaissance, not Tactical Strike and Reconnaissance. That is just a, a, a fortunate or unfortunate coincidence. The workshare was split cleanly at the point near the trailing edge of the wing box, with Vickers making everything in front of this line, while English Electric was responsible for the wing, the rear fuselage, the power plant and the tail. And this arrangement satisfied the 50-50 split between the two firms. The engine would be developed by Bristol Sidley Engines, who had now just been formed by the merger of Bristol Engines and Armstrong Sidley. There were many lines of research which helped bring the TSR2 design together. For example, in 1960, a group of aircraft called Swifter Flight, in fact six Canberras, fitted with instrumentation to record turbulence and accelerations when fly extensively, extensively at low level. These operated for a period in the Mediterranean, over the sea, and over all sorts of terrain from mountains to desert. Because it's factors like this that use a pair frame life. And this data resulted in the use of a flexible multi-spar wing to help give TSR2 a high fatigue life. Consequently, the ride for the crew at low level was to be smooth, but the resulting small wing was incompatible with a specified short field performance. So TSR2 had to have very high thrust engines and near full span blown flaps, which in fact increased the lift at low air speeds quite dramatically. But then the latter had led to the use of differential or moving tailor-ons for both pitch and roll control. All of these um, important factors in the, uh, affecting the design. On top of this, there was a host of testbed aircraft. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Avro Vulcans that had the Olympus slung underneath in a saddle beneath the bomber's belly, and while other Canberras and Buccaneers would be used to test the avionics. Another piece of advanced design was an all-moving single-surface fin used for auto-damping, but which was kept to a minimum size to cut weight and drag. That is a rare feat, and the only aircraft I can think of with that, an all-moving fin, was a vigilante in America, and I think uh, one of the French experimental prototypes from the 1950s. And the development of a terrain-following system that hugged the contours of the landscape, not just the bumps, but the hollows as well, was considered to be a big step forward. And in July 1959, a TSR2 datum design was prepared. Uh, that's a three-view drawing from the brochure. That's not the best quality, but that's the artwork from it. And a feature that stands out from the aircraft as built is the different arrangement of the air intakes. Probably see it better on that, can't we? Data, this datum design was prepared in July 59. Earlier revised specifications from the Olympus engine had been received and new fuel consumption figures had affected the range and take-off distances quite adversely, a fact showing unsatisfactory values. So to restore the performance, the wing area had now been increased by approximately 10% with a consequent increase in the aircraft size and weight as a whole. As an aside, uh, when I've been researching this aircraft, I found this drawing, it's a BAC Weybridge drawing for a TSR2 with a TSR2 for a variable geometry swing wing. It's dated September 1960. Absolutely no data for this, I'm afraid, but would variable geometry have made a difference? An important point with this is, um, the sort of direct equivalent in the Soviet Union was the Sukhoi 24 Fencer, which was a tactical strike aircraft with a swing wing. But the original prototype for that, which was called the T6, had a fixed wing not dissimilar, I believe, to TSR2s.
The cockpit mock-up was officially viewed at Weybridge in January 1960, by which time the first of many assessments to see whether the aircraft was really needed had begun. On the 11th of September 1960, Sir Solly Zuckerman, who was then was Chief Scientific Advisor to the Ministry of Defence, he compared TSR2 against the Buccaneer and noted that there can be no doubt that the TSR2 specification is up to the performance demanded of the aircraft and that no other can meet it. But Zuckerman had also learned that TSR2's capacity to fly very fast and low, thereby, thereby exploiting a height range in which current defence systems could not operate, did not give it special merit in terms of vulnerability. The Ministry of Aviation informed him that a speed of Mach 1.1 or 1.2 at low level gave no advantage over a speed of Mach 0.9, in other words, a subsonic speed. Even the Buccaneer, which could do Mach 0.9, would to all intents and purposes be invulnerable at low level unless the target had a standing supersonic fighter patrol. Though TSR2 would, it was expected, give a better ride and be a much better contour follower. Later, I believe Zuckerman would turn against TSR2, but the contract was forthcoming in October 1960 for nine development aircraft. However, with the addition of a strategic nuclear role, TSR2's performance requirements would over time be expanded, and in 1961, the conventional and tactical nuclear bomb load was increased. And indeed, a new, more advanced, more precise requirement called OR343 replaced 339 in August 1960. And in some areas it was more exacting, the more significant differences being a minimum height now of 200 feet or less instead of the original 1,000 feet, plus Mach 2 speed at altitude, and instead of red beard, a new tactical nuclear lay-down weapon for low-level use was now planned, which would become the WE-177. The TSO2 development programme initially envisaged a first flight in March 1963. BAC felt the airframe would not present any problems during development, and Bristol Sydney was satisfied that the power plant or any development would meet the timescale. It was a nav attack system, a new area in electronic systems, that was expected to be the weak link in the development and the schedule and programme. As it happened, the airframe took longer to design and construct than was originally estimated, and the engine suffered a long sequence of mechanical faults while the development of the Navitat system actually progressed quite smoothly through the same period. One of the factors behind TSO2's high cost compared to previous projects was the use of more expensive materials such as titanium alloys, high-grade steels and aluminium and lithium alloy sheet. Now I'm a metallurgist by trade and I would like now to highlight two points relative to TSO2's structure and airframe. And the first TSR2 was to use a first-generation uh, American-produced aluminium-lithium alloy called X2020, the X standing for experimental, which had been used on the wings and horizontal stabilizers of the not dissimilar North American A3J Vigilante US Navy strike aircraft, which I believe had been specifically designed for high-altitude roll and not low-level. But the early aluminium-lithium alloys suffered from brittleness, and for TSR2's low-level role, that might have been a problem. This is a drawing from the National Archives showing the amount of aluminium-lithium in the shaded area that would have been tended to be used for TSR2 fuselage and wing skinning. Since lithium is the least dense elemental metal, this new alloy was significantly less dense than the a standard aluminium alloy. Its composition, if you're interested, was aluminium 4.5% copper, 
1.1% lithium and 0.5% manganese. But it had to be imported from the US, which increased the cost. It was also less attractive in respect of its transverse ductility, that's its um, ability to stretch, fatigue properties, notch sensitivity and crack propagation. But its use in place of conventional materials, conventional aluminium alloys, might cut the airframe rate by, rate by as much as 10%. However, a British National Archives document, which is where this drawing came from, shows that many concessions have been made for the development batch TSR2s to use a conventional alloy called AL71, which in fact was aluminium, 4% copper, 0.75% silicon, 0.7% manganese. This is an alternative to aluminium lithium. And a decision followed to also substitute HAL 71 instead of X2020 on production aircraft where possible. For the record, British standard HAL 71 was just a general development of good old fashioned duralumin. A Weybridge report from February 1960 showed that in the areas where it was proposed to use aluminium lithium, the total resulting penalty from not using it came to an increase in weight of £844. And the estimated performance of TSR2 had been based on the use of aluminium lithium. If the same performance was to be obtained from an aircraft containing no aluminium lithium, the all-up weight would be increased by about eight times the penalty figure, that is to about £6,500. There were no details given in the report of how this was calculated, but that's a considerable weight increase. The second um, materials point I'd like to point out is my former company, High Duty Alloys at Redditch, forged many different parts for the TSR2 in aluminium, titanium and steel, and each of these required planning, metal production, forging, heat treatment, machining and testing. This is the HDA tailplane frame. We actually found a batch of these in a planner's desk after he'd retired. And as soon as I turned it up the other way, I realised straight away that's the distinct rear fuselage shape of TSR2. In fact, this is the tailplane frame, and the all-moving fin would have slotted into that sort of hole or notch in the top there. It's a huge slab of RR58 aluminium alloy, and it would fit around the engine, as you can see there. It was 119 inches wide, 46 inches tall, and over 9 inches thick, and there would be one per airframe. And at cancellation, 65 of these have been made, only to become so much scrap metal. And I think the price was £250 each. And that's £250 in 1960s prices, not today. The planner, uh, uh, so I found him in a planner's desk, a planner would actually work out how a new metal part would be made. And thanks to HDA's record, excellent record keeping, I was able to find 20 years later just how many pieces of these were made. I might add I did it in work's time. You won't tell anybody, will you? <laughs> this is a picture of the part after it had been forged and sort of cut to shape. It's actually going through ultrasonic testing for internal defects. And here it's been rigged up for heat treatment operation, which would give it its optimum properties. And this is a, an original um, BAC drawing, and you can see the tailplane fits. I'm going to round off with some Air Ministry references really, I suppose, a diary of events, which were mostly written in February 1965, and so prepared before the aircraft was cancelled. First, in March 1963, the first flight was now expected in January 1964, but by April this had slipped to mid-1964. A confidential programme produced within the Ministry of Aviation anticipated the following programme. 
Aircraft 1 to 9 were to be used for development. 10 to 14 would go to aircraft, aeroplane and armament experimental establishment at Boscombe Down. And then 15 and 20 to 20 were earmarked for the RAF's TSR2 development squadron, which in fact was to be number 237 operational conversion unit, conversion unit based at Coningsby. Materials for 30 production aircraft had been ordered in March 1964, and aircraft were expected to leave the production line at approximately two monthly intervals. And there's a, a nice shot of TSR2s being built at Weybridge. No final production figure was agreed, but the then Ministry of Defence planning figures were based on a front line of 106 aircraft within a total order of 158, with production to be completed in 1973. A big blow was Australia's move in October 1963 to buy the American TFX, what became the F-111, rather than TSR-2. After that, Germany showed occasional interest, but this proved not to be serious. The front and rear halves of the first aircraft, serial XR-219, were joined at Weybridge in March 1963, and a successful first flight took place on the 27th of September 1964, and that's not the first flight, because you'll notice there the snowy landscape in the background. That's either one of the flights in December or following January. But in October 64, the general election returned a Labour government, and numerous comparison studies began immediately between TSR-2, the American McDonnell F-4 Phantom, and the General Dynamics F-111, and indeed several other aircraft types. After engine changes and mods, Second test flight took place on the 31st of December 1964 and in the following month the aircraft flew a further seven times and accumulated approximately three hours of flying time and the handling characteristics of the aircraft at low speed apparently proved to be first class. Of the nine development aircraft, by February 1965 one had flown several times, two more were virtually complete and the remainder were in an advanced stage of assembly and there's, I think that's probably my favourite picture of TSR-2. I'm not sure which flight that was taken on. And this next photograph is sure very familiar to many of you, but it does show the aircraft's wing shape very well. Unfortunately, the Labour cabinet decided to cancel TSR-2. This was announced on the 6th of April 1965 during that year's budget speech. This was a huge step cancellation, but it brought praise and criticism from both within government and the national establishments and from the press. And in the end, only the very first prototype was the one that would fly, even though the second aircraft was by that stage ready to take to the air. Facts have emerged in regard to DS TSR2's development, which show that at cancellation, of course, it was far away from being ready for as a service aeroplane, despite some published accounts saying otherwise. For example, wind tunnel testing had shown that flutter would occur on the all-moving fin at about Mach 1.7, which was a speed yet to be achieved in real flight. As I mentioned the aluminium lithium earlier, I would have loved to have known whether that would have become a major factor in the uh, development of the aircraft. But of course, these are problems that need to be dealt with with any new types trials and development programme. But clearly, a lot of money still needed to be spent to fix TSR2 and take it to service. But I think you can see that at cancellation, a great deal of work had already been done on TSR2, both for the development aircraft and for the production run, and well beyond those airframes in assembly. Had the aircraft continued, well, maybe today we might have been talking about a development and service career that might have proved very difficult 
and controversial in a different way. Or we might have been discussing a very successful RAF career. We will now never know, though I think my fellow speakers today may shed a little more light on what might have happened. But I'd like to add that I would have loved to have seen a TSR2 displayed at an air show. I think that might have been quite impressive, but I suspect we would not have seen it doing this. Great shot. This is, of course, a model. Um, it's a BAE Systems Heritage photograph, which they kindly supplied to me. An early BAC model depicting TSR2 in flight. Clearly, the project was aiming for the moon, but sadly, it would never quite get there. Thank you very much indeed for listening to my review of the life, the physical life of TSR2. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.